Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, the show for business owners looking to acquire, scale, or exit a business. Before we get on with today's program, we just wanted to let you know that the Buy, Grow, Sell team have been working really hard to come up with more resources that add more value to your journey. This includes a range of webinars, tools, and other events, including an online summit where we get some of the industry's leading experts to come and share their insights. If you'd like to know more, go to buygrowsell.com forward slash events. Enjoy the show. My next guest is Josh Sweeney, who was the founder of a company called Atcore Systems. Atcore basically was a software development company that helped build integrations and roll out services around CRM or customer relationship management systems. Um, he worked with a very large CRM group called Sugar CRM for any, anyone who knows this space a bit. I love this episode because it really touches on what is one of the most important things you can do in your business, and that is around the whole sales and marketing software automation integrations. You know, how do we take sales and marketing and turn it into a machine that can drive greater revenue at greater efficiency and preferably with greater margins. You know, you'd basically be sleeping under a rock if you hadn't noticed these changes over the last five years. You know, names like Salesforce and HubSpot and many, many others are, are really dominant on that global scene when it comes to sales and marketing software. And, you know, there's a lot of other businesses that, uh, that are providing similar services that you could be using, and, and a lot of them are very, very good. So, you know, no preference here around branding, but ultimately this area, if you're not spending significant time looking at your marketing and sales automations and how that can help you grow your business, then you are probably falling behind your competitors. So Josh is going to talk to us a bit about this. He's going to talk about some of the stuff that's coming over the horizon and even how artificial intelligence can play its part. And then he also shares how he goes on to sell that core systems and some of the real learnings he got out of that process and how he's pouring that into his next venture. It's a great episode. I really enjoyed this one. I hope you enjoy it too. This is Josh Sweeney. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. My pleasure indeed. Um, really looking forward to, to hearing your story. Uh, I know you started, founded, grew, and ultimately exited at Core Systems, um, which for those listening is uh, involved in software, and I won't get too far ahead of our story here, but um, you know, as those who listen to the show regularly know, we love software, we love what's going on in that space. It, I mean, it has its ups and downs, but it's an exciting area and it's really growing. And um, certainly an opportunity um, for entrepreneurs and founders to, to build amazingly valuable companies too. So um, Josh, before we sort of get into that, maybe I could kick over to you. You could give us a little bit of your background and kind of what led to you starting that business. Yeah, sure. So most of my background was in the engineering space. So went through information security, uh, worked for a lot of information security uh, firms here in the States, in the US, and um, started to grow into a sales and marketing role with one of those organizations that I was with. So when I transitioned over to sales and marketing, I started getting more into the CRM side, the software side of the house, um, because I was a sales engineer for a CRM consulting firm. And so that led me into that sales and marketing side. Interesting. And, and, and just for the uninitiated here, like what, does, what do you mean by an information security company? I mean, is, it, is that cybersecurity or is it something else? 
Yeah, so cybersecurity. So my uh, background was in endpoint security, web application security, you know, securing networks and applications. So heavy on the on the technology side in that space. Yeah, interesting. It's um it feels like every second day, you know, these days somebody else has been hacked, right? It's just a Oh yeah. You know, certainly in Australia we had a couple of really big cases in the last sort of 3-4 months and um I saw overnight I think it was uh PayPal had 35,000 users got hit. And so, and I, I guess this is the new world we live in. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's just the case. I mean, the the attack vectors and everything, you know, there's just all kinds of ways to try and get into a system now. And, yeah. you know, the information security professionals have their work cut out for them. And it creates a good opportunity, I think, for software and, you know, businesses to be built as well. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um now I know Atcore was involved in a lot in CRMs, and I, and and I want to get to that because I'm I'm uh, you know I've been a big believer. I've, I sort of came up through the sales channels as well. So CRMs to me have always been a part of my life. Back in the day when we were building things on Access and stuff like that, you know, yeah. it was kind of you know, I mean, functionality was there, you know, for the core things you wanted to do. But geez, it was a different world back then. So, um, right. but, but when did you found? When did Atcore start? And and were you the sole founder? Did you have partners? What what did those early days look like? Yeah, so I founded it as the sole owner at that time, and um, you know the early days were I became I, I did sales engineering for a CRM consulting firm prior to that Sugar CRM. And so they made some transitions and said, hey, we're going to go sell through this partner network. And I had the opportunity to become one of those partners. Cool. And I had had companies before. I'd been in and out of entrepreneurship, had some corporate jobs, things like that in the past. And I said, yeah, this, this looks good. I want, to, I want to take the partnership route and be one of those service providers on that platform. So broke out and started doing uh, you know, consulting on the platform. So that's really interesting. I, I, on one hand, you know, as the outsider looking in here, on on one hand, you know, you're kind of committing to their system and their platform, which some might say limits your ability to do lots of different things. But on the other hand, you know, it, it also perhaps de-risks some of this sort of entry into your own business. Is is that is that a fair comment? Yeah, I think there's a lot of pros and cons to it, which we can talk about, you know, in the in the exit portion. But, um, you know, the pros, I call it brand piggybacking. I just spoke to an entrepreneurship group, entrepreneur group on this uh, last week, but I call it brand piggybacking, right? They've taken the money, they're doing all the marketing, and you can become part of their ecosystem to get your services company off the ground a lot faster, right? Or you can take an existing services company and grow a lot faster by being part of another ecosystem. Yeah. Um, now, whether it's the right ecosystem, system large enough small enough for what you're going for can have some impact you know exit later and and the opportunities you have um but yeah it it provided a tremendous opportunity for me at the time you know to be part of that ecosystem and to scale up faster and it provides you know a number of different benefits um as opposed to just starting yourself and and not being in a a set ecosystem yeah that's interesting i I was going to ask like being part of an ecosystem like that and and i love the term brand piggybacking because that's it's it's a it's a good definition of it, really. But in that environment, were there any restrictions on kind of bolt-on products or services that you could offer your clients? 
for that for that group, we didn't find that there was really any uh, limitations for us. I mean, it was a growing market. And what we find is when you piggyback on a brand like that, they want you to help build more. They want you to go build the integration. So like our organization, this was early Twitter days. We were the first one to do a Twitter integration with the platform. You know, so it didn't exist. There wasn't one. Um, yeah. So we were kind of leading the pack. We were the we were the company who actually built the integration to Mailchimp, and that was one of our number one integrations. So uh, I think just given the ecosystem we were in, you know, they knew that integrations and the bolt-ons and the other things that we did added to the value of the community, and so we didn't really feel any restrictions from that. And I think you know that that varies based on you know who you're partnering up with and who you're piggybacking on. I think. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, gosh, so many questions come to mind because I've been through this process a few times. But um, when you build those integrations, does that kind of IP, does that then get shared with the network of other providers or is that your IP and only used with your clients or like, you know, what sort of happens with that kind of specialised work you do? Yeah, so all of the IP was ours. And so we owned that intellectual property. And then what we did was there was a third party market that would also carry and resell add-ons. So, you know, if you think about it almost like nowadays, you know, if you have an Apple device, you go to the app store and you get the add-on you want, right? You add the software. Very same, similar in the CRM space. And a lot of software now has a marketplace. You know, the top, top vendors have a marketplace. Yep. Um, so there's already agreements in place for you know, how that marketplace interacts with the rest of the community and the ecosystem and how those get sold. But ultimate ownership was on us uh, from an intellectual property perspective. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, so you get to get some upside protection there as well, but it's, um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, I realized I sort of jumped ahead and we've already used a bit of jargon and terminology here. You know, it's, um, there's probably a few people listening who go, what is a CRM? I mean, which, I mean, to you and, and me is sometimes, you know, still surprising that it's kind of still new terminology for some people, but maybe you could take us through what is a CRM, how does it work, and, and, and how did it specifically relate to the work you were doing? Sure. So, you know, most companies have a, a CRM, customer relationship management. Most companies have a database of all of their names and contacts and accounts and deals that they're using to run sales and marketing and oftentimes portions of operations. So you know, the, the easiest way to think of it is, is it's a database that houses you know, these contacts, companies and deals for the sales and marketing teams to maintain and build relationships with prospects and clients. Um, now, there's lots of other uses. So to put it into context, you know, and, and people a lot of people don't know this, but they're highly customizable and configurable. So what you do is CRMs have actually expanded out to become platforms to build the business on. And so with something like a Salesforce, right, there's not much you can't do with it as a platform to run your company. Uh, so there's companies like ours or the ones that I had where we do consulting on it and we build that out based on the needs of the business. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And and so I guess for, for anyone who's perhaps a little bit more old school, and you know, it's funny because I had a couple of clients just in the last two years, we kind of pushed them to get our CRM. You know, there were 30, 40 million turnover companies and they weren't managing client relationships other than, oh, well, that's the sales guy and he kind of does that and he has his own list. And and I sat there and honestly, if I had hair, I probably would have pulled it out because I'm like, how can you run a business like this? Like, it's just insane. Um <laughs> But um, for anyone who's a little bit old school and listening to this, like it's okay if you're in that situation, right? 
and, and I also think anyone who's a bit of an old school sales manager will relate to this, where they've looked at their team. And if you've got a team of salespeople, it's, whether it's three or five or 50, where you look at the team and you know there's always going to be some star performers, there's always going to be some people who struggle, and, you, and, and there's salespeople who are missing out of the office or whatever, and you're wondering, what the hell are these people doing? You know, how, how do we actually track and manage and monitor and know that these guys are, and girls are delivering and doing what they're meant to be doing? And, and by the way, how can we actually define what success looks like, right? And so unless you're looking at the behaviours of successful salespeople, and being able to break it down to a task level and, you know, the communication level, then how do you actually know what to train the next person on? And so, you know, for us as, as a sales manager and, you know, one t- point in time I had a team of over 30 people and, you know, if you're not using systems to manage those people, like you, you just can't do it, you know, it's, you, just, you just can't get across all of the information that you need to. So fascinating yeah. and, and a mission critical system basically is what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, definitely mission critical, especially if you're a growing company. Yeah, for sure. Now, just with CRMs, and I don't want to get too technical today because it's more about kind of hearing your journey and story, but the thing that I guess has blown me away over the last, I'm going to say sort of 10 years, but even more so the last five years, is, is how marketing automation has now just been built into CRMs. Okay, sometimes they're an add-on or a bolt-on and you're, you know, doing integrations like you talked about before, but fundamentally bringing sales and marketing together to to create what I refer to often is a revenue machine. (laughs) I'm I'm always sort of talking to business owners who want to sell their company one day. And when I explain to them that a buyer is buying your future stream of profit and they're looking for a system that generates money, right? Hey, we turn this dial or pull this lever and more money spits out the other end. And, and that's a lovely, simplistic way of putting it. We all know right. it's a lot more complicated than that. But, you know, the best way to describe, you know, your system is to show them you have a system, that you've got a way of generating leads, that there's, it's, you know, it's not just people running around trying to hopefully bump into people and build relationships and sell something to them. It's you have a model. It is trackable. You've got data. You you know you know conversion levels and the cost of your acquisition of customers and what the lifetime value of your customers are. And and by the way, if you're hearing some of this terminology and saying what does he mean by that, then maybe give me a call or certainly Google it. But this this is stuff you need to know, right? But it's but Jesus has evolved so much over the last number of years. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're seeing more and more of those features get combined into one platform. And we're also seeing that salespeople are having to, you know, take their level of sophistication and knowledge of using those tools in order to even compete. You know, nowadays it's getting to where, you know, SDR sales development reps are using tools to send out sequences and it's automatic, right? You're not keeping a sheet and writing down who you need to follow up with anymore. It's automatically doing that. And the challenge we see is it it becomes harder to compete if you're not using the tools because that person over there is getting 60 a day done and your person doing it the old school way is getting 10 a done, 10 done. Now that's if, you know, holding all things constant, the person doing 60 is going to win. Um, You know, so there's just different challenges where we're seeing more and more of that automation built into the tools. Yeah, absolutely. And, And the other part to that whole automation piece that I love. And you're right, like there's there's the the quantity or the volume aspect to it. 
But there's also the qualitative aspect. You know, anyone who's ever had to do sales in their life of any form, by the way, understands the importance of timing. You know, timing in the market, timing in front of the client, striking while the iron's hot. I can come up with a million different cliches for this, but ultimately, when a customer takes some form of action, right? Often that's a buying signal, you know? And and as we all know, you know, a buyer could be hot for an hour or two before they start cooling off. And if you wait till the next day to contact them, they might be busy. They could be distracted. There's something else has popped up. They're, they're no longer in that frame of mind where if you had captured them in that moment, they probably would have acquired what you're selling. And so, you know, I, I've seen some really intricate systems that are, you know, they're sharing videos and contents and they're saying, okay, only of this three-minute video, only if somebody watches more than one minute and 45 seconds, I want you to email them with this. And then if they haven't watched that, email them something else. And then, and it's fascinating for me to sort of see both the psychology and the level of sort of thinking that's gone into that automation to, to get better results than their competitors. Yeah, I mean, there's so much uh, in the way of marketing automation tools nowadays, and they continue um, to get easier to use. They continue to come down market from like a pricing perspective where there's very easy entry level ways to utilize that. And like you said, I mean, the software is automatically segmenting people. If I fill in a form and I fill out industry A or industry B, I'm going to get the stream of, you know, content from that industry, you know, and all of that's dripping, you know, it's staying in front of that prospect or that client, whatever it might be all while you're sleeping. Like you said, you want to build the machine, you know, whether you're at your desk, whether you remember to follow up, whether your, your sales team remembers, like it's just automatically happening. So we're seeing just more and more of that with, with all the technology that's out there. So again, it's, it's harder for the, the old school style to compete at some, you know, in, in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Completely agree. Um, I, I had no intention of actually talking about this necessarily today, but I, I've got to ask you now, um, <laughs> what are your thoughts around things like chat GPT and AI and how that, you know, what kind of role that's going to play in marketing and sales automation for the future? Yeah. So what we're seeing is we've been using, uh, you know, there's, there's all the tools you mentioned. There's also like Jasper AI. We've been playing with that a lot in, in my new firm. And, um, I think the role it's going to play is it's, it's really going to change the dynamic in that you will be able to create and generate the text that you need a lot quicker and easier as it, you know, and as it gets smarter, it'll do more and more. So like I explained it like this the other day, we haven't used it to generate an entire blog. We don't, you know, blog posts, we don't think it's quite on point. It's not on brand, but if I want to do a blog post on the top 10 things you need to know about CRM, I can have it generate a list of 15 and pick the top 10 that I like out of it. And it does it in a half a second. And all of a sudden, I don't even have to come up with them. You know, so what we're seeing is I think for the next few years, it's going to be an accelerator for the people who know how to use it. Yeah. I don't know that it's just going to do everything for you. I think they're going to offset some of that. You know, Google and some other people are going to offset like the impacts of some of that, but it's an accelerator. So it's going to look at the information and be able to predict and write for you. Or, you know, like we're talking about sales, there's tools now where it just looks at your communication and it's going to auto generate an email back to that person. And it may be 80% correct. And you, you can edit it, you know, in a few seconds and send it out. So we're just seeing it's a lot of, a, it's an accelerator right now to the work that we have to do. 
Yeah, that's that's a good explanation. Um, once again, for those listening who might be saying, "What the hell is Chat GPT?" Um, basically, it's it's, and I'm going to do a bad job of explaining this, but it's basically artificial intelligence. It's online. You can have a Chrome, you know, extension and stuff like that. So everyone's used to doing a Google search, but this thing can give you far more defined answers. You can ask more specific questions. And so to Josh's point, you can actually type in there, what are the top 15 issues or selling points or whatever around CRM systems? And it will rattle it off. Um, we've been doing some testing with it for, for content on our side. Um, and not that you would copy it straight across because that's copyright as well, but it's, it's there's ideas and, and things you can play with. And you know, we've even done stuff like, hey, give us uh, an explanation of this topic or how would you write about this topic, including the five top things and include this quote from James Clear. And it off it goes and it writes this thing oh, yeah. and, and it is written so damn well that, um, and, and we even wrote in there, and it wasn't me, it was, it was um, Shanti, our marketing director, but it goes, um, could you rewrite this and make it more conversational? Yeah, sure. Brrr, off it goes. We're like, Holy moly, this thing is just phenomenal. So if, you, if you're hearing this and you haven't heard about ChatGPT, get online and restart having a look at it because this, this is the world changing in front of your eyes. You know, it's uh, you know, often the world changes at a very slow pace, a little bit like watching grass grow, but this thing is going to move quickly and it's going to change things fairly quickly in my view. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it, it is just amazing. And to think Google's investing, I mean, not Google, sorry, Microsoft, is investing billions of dollars into OpenAI, which which runs ChatGPT, and they're saying we're doing this because we're going to integrate AI into our products. So, you know, I think it is good to at least have an awareness of this stuff and uh, and and understand how it might impact your world. Yeah, and there's so many ways that it's having an impact, and I think it's I think a lot of that's just moving faster and faster. And you know, we have to look at that. You know, what what it what was IP today, or what is IP today? may not be IP tomorrow if somebody can crank that out, right? When you look at inbound marketing as a concept, I mean, all the articles you write for inbound, all the work that you do, and something can go, you know, if you feed it right, it'll generate the majority of that. It's a it's a game changer, right? So that, that means we have to adjust as marketers, as salespeople, as business owners uh, to understand what is, what's coming ahead. You know, what do we think if, if that replaces what we've done, what's the next thing, you know, how are the dynamics changing? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I think there's probably a lot of content marketing agencies out there at the moment going, Oh, geez, I think our business model is about to be disrupted. So, um, which, which in a way actually, um, it's sort of, when you think about the last five years, of, of marketing, both Google and Facebook and everybody has been saying to anyone who'll listen, video is the future. You know, you need to be right. doing more video and, and we're going to favor video in our algorithms and all this sort of stuff. Um, and, and I think that's logical. You know, I think the, the, the value of a blog article probably is diminished in a lot of people's minds or at least the, 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 the platform's minds when it can just be generated by another computer, right? It's how much is this is your content? Are you really the subject matter expert? Should we preference you in listings over others if you're just getting a computer to give the answer? So I, I do think it's really interesting. I think it'll, I think it'll change SEO um, as, as, a, as a channel of marketing as well. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, that's, I was sharing basically the similar assessment the other day with somebody. I said, if all of this can be auto-generated, the next thing, you know, it's hard to auto-generate video. Now we're doing deep fakes, we're doing AI video and stuff now, but it is tough, you know, it, Gary V, you know, it's going to be hard to replicate that person on stage authentically in a video with AI for a while, right? So hopefully you have another five or 10 years and you just need to know that video is going to trump probably the written word, right? It's going to be a uh, higher value than the written word um, from a marketing perspective, just because it's going to be unique and authentic. So, you know, what's next, who knows, but you know, yeah. it's coming. It, it, it makes me wonder whether, you know, business life as always goes in cycles, right? I, 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 it makes me wonder, post-COVID era, changing scenario, I wonder how much more in-person events and workshops and things like that will start to, whether they'll be start to become more popular as people look for a more engaging and authentic experience. Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the interesting things in, in kind of being in the marketing space now is that when we look at like sub $5 million companies, especially in B2B, especially professional services, when you go talk to those founders, the majority of their deals are still done through relationships. So no matter how much we hype up all the different marketing tactics, the social media, the Facebook advertising, the GPT chats, all of those, you go to a sub $5 million B2B services founder, I'm betting 90% of their revenue came from a relationship. You know, it came from meeting somebody, it came from a referral. And so it's interesting to really look at, you know, what is happening out in the market, but what's really driving revenue based on the size of the company. And those are very different dynamics, right? Perception versus reality. Uh, it's not saying that we don't need one or the other, um, but we do have to recognize that as founders, where is it really coming from? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. Yeah. And, and it's, I guess too, like all marketing and even, even if you break down a typical sales process, you know, having really great widgets and wonderful marketing doesn't mean more sales, right? We, we know that, but it's, it does, it, it's meant to sell the next step, right? The marketing might allow you to get in front of somebody and have a conversation where you didn't before. It doesn't mean they'll buy from you, just a, it, it's earned you the right to take one more step with them, right? And, and that's right. where that relationship piece is, takes it from you're in the game to taking you across the finish line and getting you a deal. So it's, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. I, I, I just love all this. It's, I think the principles of human beings and the way we engage hasn't necessarily changed. You know, the foundations. It's just, it's just how we go about doing things generally. You know, it's uh, how those things are facilitated. I guess is has moved so much in the last sort of five to ten years. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, in the, in the B two B space, I mean, we see it as a great way to initiate a conversation, right? Like marketing is supposed to initiate the beginning of a conversation. If you think it's almost like a dating app, right? Like it connects people and initiates a conversation, but you probably still have to actually go on that date. You know, maybe somebody uh, much younger is doing it on Zoom or something. I don't know. But eventually you probably got to go on the date. And uh, I feel like at least in the B2B space, that's very common, right? It, there's a high expectation that marketing is going to practically close the deal for you. I'm like, actually, it's just trying to get that that one opening. It's, it's trying to help, help you get one opening to then show up and talk to somebody on a one-to-one, human-to-human level. Then the deal gets closed. Yeah, yeah. We, I, we have a friend of ours who she's been on a, on a dating app and, and it's been, as somebody who's been married for many, many years, my wife and I are sort of like fascinated by this whole, like, wow, really? Like, is that how it all works these days? You know, like, 
you know, we started dating when they're, you know, the internet had only just been born and it was like, you know, so right. but, but it's funny how the marketing play part plays out, right? Because she was saying how, oh, yeah, all the guys, they've always got photos of them either skiing or mountain climbing or something. And when they turn up for the date, they're often quite different to their persona right. online. It's like, oh, great marketing, but just delivery was poor. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> oh, anyway, so um, yeah, I'm, I'm on this. I'm on the same. We're in the same uh, kind of path, I guess. I've been married for a, a long time now, and I I don't remember there being dating apps. So yeah, don't yeah, know yeah. What that's like, like oh, that's an interesting story. How did that happen? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. It just sort of the mind boggles a bit, but uh, yeah. Anyway, funny stuff. That's that's life. But. Uh, yeah, so Josh, I've, I've, hopefully people got a good understanding of the kind of stuff you, you were doing there. And, and you know, I want to jump back into AppCore here because, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think you founded in 2007, you said, is that right? Yeah, roughly. I think 2009 officially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I always say to people too, when we started out, because the first year or so, you're kind of scrambling and trying to work out what the hell you're doing and, and probably more importantly, what you're not doing, right? You've got to right, learn what definitely. to say no to, but um. So I know you exited in 2016. Talk to me about that journey. You know, you know, you started the business. You're on your own. Um, you know, getting first customers is always a trial. First employees. You know, talk to me a bit about that sort of growth journey. Sure. So I mean, it was an excellent ride. Um, we had, you know, in those early days, you got like four and three digit growth numbers year over year, which is really fun. Um, so we were doing great in the early days. We were working through the channel and the partners and ecosystems and, and doing a lot of subcontract work to get off the ground. Um, and so early journey was a blast, a lot of hard work, you know, a lot of late evenings, uh, a few years in, we had kind of our worst year, right? So we got used to everything going smooth, I think. And then boom, you have that first big learning year. Uh, that doesn't go so well. So we had a, a big setback that year. Learned lots of lessons, you know, about the team and and how to grow. Was that was that that tough year? Was it was it an external factor? Was it like what would you put that that result down to, or was it a bunch of factors? Yeah, I would say a number of things happened, but you know, at the core, I kind of have I have this hypothesis that you know, as a founder of a company. Every challenge, if you're a growing founder, right? Let's say you're just growing on average 20% a year. If you're growing every year to some degree, every challenge is harder, more expensive, and more complex than the last. And so I think what we, what maybe I got into the rhythm of is, you know, you can use the similar solution, right? I just learned this, but you know, how will this translate? Everything gets bigger. The numbers get bigger, the zeros, you know, there gets more zeros behind. So when you do have a loss, um, just, I guess, inadvertently, there's, there's more zeros behind the impact, um, which can set you back very quickly. So I don't know that there was one core reason that it, it happened. I think it was more just learning how to grow a business. This at core was my first multi-million dollar business. I think before that, my biggest company had maybe been 400,000 US. Um, and so a lot of it was just learning, you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, it's, um, you know, I use the analogy, you know, really, regardless of how good you are and how good your business is, you're still a small boat in a very large ocean. And when when the large macro picture wave comes, you're going to feel it. 
<laughs> right? It doesn't matter how good you are, how specialized you are, how this, how that, like it's, it's, it has its impact. And, and an impact might be different for different companies. But, yeah, it's um, the, the, that macro environment is the ultimate driver of whether there's opportunities in the market for you or not. Um, so it's, uh, it's an interesting one. Um, how, how big did your team get by the time you exited? I think the largest we were ever at was maybe 15. Yep. Yeah. And that ebbed and flowed, you know, again, a lot of lessons on how to hire, how to filter people, how to assess people for, you know, to hire them. Um, you know, it always, I would say it's kind of scary how many people we might've churned through, you know, over about nine years. Yep. Um, there's lots of lessons learned. You know, you think just because maybe you worked in another corporate environment and you showed up and you were one of the team members on the hiring team doing the interviews that you'd be really good at that. Um, but it's, it's, there's a lot more to everything. Right. And maybe that goes back to your earlier question. You're like, what was the crux of it? You know, what gave us the down year is, you know, when you, when you own and run the company, you really have to be or become the expert at everything in the early days. You know, you have to know how to deliver the work, do the work, sell the work, market, HR, finance. If any of that slips, it's, it's ultimately on you as the owner. Yeah. And, and that feeds into something I'm seeing a lot of at the moment. Um, you know, we've had COVID, we've had all these issues, people out there growing their businesses. I was chatting to a friend of mine actually, um, and she's based in Colorado. And we were talking about, you know, we've got a similar business to our exit advisory group. And, you know, we've been friends for about five years and we always share ideas, right? And um, a while ago, they kind of went down this path of bringing on more employees and less contractors. And in fact, even switching contractors to employees. And it was and it was driven around, oh, well, there was some legal stuff around whether you're deemed an employee or not. And that's that's fair enough. Right. Um, but I think the the more strategic thinking behind it was employees tend to be more committed, they more um, this is a really bad word to use, but sort of indoctrinated into our the way we like to do things and you know, you get on board the train and everybody's kind of, you know, singing from the same hymn book, so to speak. And you know, that can generate more value in a business as it's growing because, you know, people are more focused on that. It's not just about, hey, I'm a contractor, I turn up and do the thing that you're paying me to do and then I'm out. You know, you get zero discretionary effort from me because you don't pay me for discretionary effort. Um, and so they went down that path. Uh, I must admit it with our business, you know, we've, we've kind of pulled both levers, you know, a few employees, a few contractors, stuff like that. But it's, I always see this sort of, really interesting mix here because the contractors give you that sort of accordion style flexibility as the market moves, which for me is a really important business with sort of 12 people in the team. Um, you know, when you're a global company with 50,000 employees, well, you know, you've usually got a bit of extra fat on the bone. You can kind of handle the ebbs and flows of those markets yeah. a little bit better. So right. I don't know, do you have any thoughts generally and, and how did you run your business? Did you Did you use both employees and contractors or... Yeah, what what did you found work the best for you? Yeah, so in AtCore Systems, you know, we've we've done it a lot of different ways then and and differently now even. But in AtCore Systems specifically, we were that company that really wanted full time in office committed people, right? And this was up to 2016 until the exit, so pre COVID. 
Um, so yeah, we were all about full time and we got people in and we wanted to really have a culture of people that wanted to be around each other, wanted to collaborate and, and how do we build that culture up? And so, yeah, that was full time. And then we had a, our group of developers, which was our office. It wasn't through another company, but we had a group of, de of six developers in our Belgrade, Serbia office. And so we had those two teams. So we had our headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia, in the US, and then our Belgrade office. And that offset certain challenges because the Belgrade office could uh, add engineers at a, um, a more cost-effective rate, but still very compatible culturally with what we were doing here in the US. And so we balanced it out that way in, in that company. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And I, th and I think, you know, we're seeing so much more of that these days, right? I mean, I know for us, we've got a small team in the Philippines um, because yeah. a lot because the time zone works, right? But there's the cultural element, you know? I think the Western influence there just makes that whole communication piece so much easier. And um, yeah, it just, just makes a lot of sense. Um, Talk me through a little bit, um, where, you, this idea of exiting, right? I mean, exit in 2016. When did exiting start coming into your thinking? Like where on that journey? Uh, well, the first bout was that year that we had a really bad year. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, forget this. I'm done. Like the whole thing's imploding, right? I've never been through it. Uh, not to that level. Yeah. Um, and so we actually went out and talked to three different people, which I would never recommend, right? You never sell down. Uh, but we started talking to a few people and they gave me some numbers and that really just motivated me to double down. I'm like, all right, I, if, if that's, if that's all this is going to be, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to double down and work harder. And the next year we had our, you know, the most profitable year in, in business uh, up until that point. So the double down worked. A little bit later, we just started seeing some market consolidation where we were at and with the ecosystem we were in and with the partnership we had. Um, and there was just other things that were happening in that ecosystem where we said, you know, I think it's time that we start talking to other partners to see if we can merge, if we can get acquired. Um, and one of those partners reached out and was like, hey, if you're ever thinking about this, I was like, Actually, I just started thinking about it. Let's have that conversation. If you're thinking about the exit, you know, if you're thinking about what you want to do next, I was like, actually, I am. Uh, so we started to have that conversation. So it wasn't quite as an in intentional as I would be this round. Um, you know, like you said earlier, I think there needs to be there needs to be a plan. You need to be intentional. You need to have a date and, and really drive to to those um, to those goals. But you know it kind of, it, it started happening within about a year. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, of when we and, sold. and it's funny how, how many transactions do come around from that sort of proverbial tap on the shoulder, right? It's, um, you know, and I, I think it makes sense if you're a business owner, it makes sense for you to just be aware of what's going on in the environment, right? It's, um, you know, there can be transactions going on around you and you're not even, you know, if you don't, if you're not aware of them happening, then you know, geez, your your entire market landscape could change on you, but uh, but you could be missing a good opportunity for you personally. Um, yeah, most definitely. Yeah. yeah. So talk me a little bit through the uh, the process you went through. So they started a conversation. Um, how long did that go? Did you hire advisors? How long did it take? Did it, where did money start coming into play? 
Yeah. So luckily, I mean, I'm in an organization called Entrepreneur Organization, and it's other it's fourteen thousand members worldwide. So because of that, I could I could ask other entrepreneurs that had done transactions, and you know, one of the early things was was let's get the money piece out of the way. I don't want to spend the next month giving you information to find out that we're just going to get you know lowballed and we're not even in the same ballpark, and that's where it falls apart. So. I found that, you know, a lot of the experience I've heard is that people, uh, you know, they bury that till the end where you're already kind of committed and then they come in with an offer, you know, and I was like, I'm not, I'm not going through that. So, um, so yeah, I think we got a letter of intent at LOI pretty quickly and, you know, it felt like within 90 days we were having, you know, almost to the end of the conversation. So, you know, zero to 90 days from LOI started passing over, you know, materials and, you know, doing the NDAs, passing over books and other, you know, materials, um, you know, and going through that process. Yeah. yeah interesting. Um, you're so right about that process. I've, I've, in fact, I've ended up with a lot of clients who went through that process. They got approached, there was an offer, they get dragged through this big long-winded due diligence and sort of six to nine months later, they feel like I've given you everything and then they either get lowballed because the buyer knows they're just so committed to the process and have already spent the money mentally. Right. Um, or, or the buyer literally changes strategy and goes, hey, listen, we're out. We're really sorry, but different corporate strategy. Or I, I saw once where they said, we've got a new CEO and they've put a freeze on all M&A for 18 months. It's like, wow, hang on a minute. Like I've just invested an enormous amount of money and time and effort into this process. So, you know, I think we've ended up having people come to us saying, I'm super frustrated because I, I I went down that path and in the end, in many cases, they were only dealing with that one buyer and so they had no competitive right. tension, no second backup options, you know, and, and, you know, please correct me if you have a different view here, Josh, but, you know, you start pulling together any information you need for due diligence. There's a lot of work, right? <laughs> and, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of work and a lot of things. Yeah, you weren't prepared for and didn't have together already. Yeah, right. And so, I mean, if you're going to go to the, all the effort to pull that together and share it with one potential party, you'd be mad not to go and potentially show it to others. And don't get me wrong. I mean, you may not have done that, Josh, but we've had certainly some clients who've gone, no, this is a good fit and we know it's working and, and it's worked out beautifully for them. Um, I guess I probably just end up talking to more that it didn't work out because they're looking for a new solution. But it's... Uh, yeah, it can be hard. It can be hard to assess, you know, like what, what, how to how to approach that kind of decision point. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, you know, in retrospect, would you know, if I had to do it again, I would work with an organization that goes and puts that package together, does a little shopping ahead of time, even if we have one person, because what I found was. Once you get far enough in, you're signing, you know, certain agreements saying that you're not going to shop it during the due diligence period. You know, there's other legal contracts that you're signing. So there is a window in which it's like, hey, do I have a backup plan? Do I feel comfortable that firm C or D would come to the table if these people try to do X? you know, or, or why, whatever, whatever tactic they try to do at the end to, to lowball or whatever else it is. So, you know, I think working with an organization that puts that package together and, and does a little more shopping up front and validates, you know, would always be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Look, yeah, totally agree. I mean, at this risk of sounding self-serving there, but it's, um, it's, it's funny, we've been actually appointed in a process on a few occasions when people have had the tap 
on the shoulder and they've gone, oh, geez, we better get somebody in to help represent us. Like we're, we're flat out with our day jobs, you know. Um, and what was interesting, and I've seen this happen a number of times, is just the mere fact that they appointed us and advised the other side created the instant perception of competitive tension. <laughs> I went, oh, my goodness, okay, oh, you've got advisors. Oh, you're going to be running. Oh, yes, oh, oh you want to run your own process as well. Oh, okay, so it's not just us kind of cajoling right. you and telling you what to do. You're going to come to the table kind of more prepared on this. And so they just their attitude shifted. They spoke very differently around the process. And so it was, yeah, it was kind of just interesting seeing a shift in behavior, right? It's, and, and it just goes to show perception is reality. <laughs> Right. To me, it's, it's almost like a, uh, you know, a police, um, show where, you know, you get pulled in for questioning, <laughs> you know, and the questioning's one line of question. And all of a sudden you're like lawyer, you know, they bring the lawyer and all of a sudden all the questions are completely different. You know, you have this layer of protection and, uh, so yeah, we, we didn't do that. Um, I think it would have definitely been a better process, you know, if we, if we go at it again or when we go at it again for an exit, you know, we'll be, we'll be much more diligent in pulling somebody in and, and having somebody represent us on that side. Well, yeah. Hey, from my experience, Josh, it sounds like you did a pretty darn good job. I mean, 90 days to closure is, uh, is good. And, and, and what I will say, you know what, I don't want to paint all buyers as being kind of, um, you know, underhanded or trying to be too cunning and stuff like that. I mean, We've had amazing buyers, and and in fact, you know, talking about software, like we've done a number of transactions to to you know some of the large software aggregators, and you would know all their names. We won't go all into it now, but um, and and they've been real straight shooters. You know, they do a lot of transactions. They they yes, they do their homework to make sure they understand what they're potentially buying, um, but they're very straight shooters. They treat everyone with respect. They understand that. Time and and um, poor communication kills deals, and so you know they've been a been a dream to deal with. And I would like to think, and certainly from the feedback we've received, they've said the same from our end, right? Like it's hey, like we, we, we're right. it's about transparency. You know, I, I've said this on this show a few times: is that deals only get done when you've got a willing buyer and a willing seller who can form a lot of trust in a very short period of time. And, uh, and, that, and that means being open, honest, transparent, and, and understanding what you want and what you don't want. Um, yeah, definitely. So um, you mentioned that whole thing about offers changing. Did you get any kind of retrading in your deal later? Did they change their perspective or did the original offer sort of stand? Oh, uh, no, I think ours went really well, you know, and, and maybe it's good luck. Maybe it's who we were dealing with. But, you know, I felt like... The offer came in. I don't feel like it changed a lot. I think what happened too that built trust was this company had already done acquisitions of other similar uh, companies like ours. And they're like, hey, here's the last three we did. They're within this range. you know. So we had the ability to push a little bit for more. But when we looked at all the factors, it was like, okay, yeah, we, you know, we negotiated back and forth a little bit, but there wasn't any, any last minute major issues. It was a very transparent conversation. At least we felt that way. Yeah. Um, and so I think that was really helpful, you know, cause I've, I have other friends that have had exits and, and they've had those last minute items where they're just like, you know what, just because you did that, this is done, you know, and they just blow the, you know, the whole thing's done. Wow. Um, so yeah, we, we, we did pretty good, I think. Yeah. That's great. I, I think the old adage of trust your gut in these kind of things is important, right? Like if it feels like something's not right, even if you can't define what it is, 
you should probably explore that because, you know, t typically your gut's <laughs> a pretty good indicator of, of whether things are going well or not. Um, out of interest, Josh, I don't know if you can share what your valuation was, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about how the number was created? You know, was it a multiples of EBITDA or revenue or how did they construct their number? Yeah, so they found most of the valuation in the subscription revenue that we had, and there was a certain margin on that. So there was, you know, a number placed on that margin and it was kind of a, a multi-year Let's say it was it was like two times EBITDA or something on some subscription revenue, some license revenue. Um, so ours was broken up as you know a down payment in the form of like a six figure check up front, and then we had two years. I think it was roughly two years of like an earnout period okay. where certain tranches came in. Um, so yeah, so there wasn't there was kind of multiples on different types of revenue because we had subscription revenue and then we had consulting revenue. And the thing about it is in the in the CRM business, you know, there's a lot of businesses like this, but the majority of the revenues made uh, on the upfront project work in the first year during implementation. So there's not a lot of ongoing. I mean, there is ongoing revenue, but proportion to the amount that that company spends in the first year, it's significantly lower second and third year. For most for most CRM implementations, at least at the time, so yeah, so we got two different valuations on the subscription revenue versus the consulting revenue. Yeah, that's um, it's really interesting, and it's a good takeaway, I think, for anyone listening, is that you know I think we all hear about software companies, you know, pure SaaS companies selling it, you know, huge, huge multiples. Um, you know, we we sold one just last year that sold it for sort of six times their top line revenue. Um, yeah. We had other companies who have a SaaS product um, with some consulting as well. And like in your example, buyers looked at them very differently. They said, well, we'll use this methodology for the recurring sort of software-based stuff and a different multiple for the project stuff. Um, I, I think even if you're not in the software game, the, the, there's a great takeaway here for businesses. Like if you're a purely project-based business, and you do these big projects for those clients and, you know, some of them do the odd extra project with you, but, you know, a lot of them don't. That kind of business won't get valued as highly as people who have either A, really ongoing repeat customers, and of course, subscription customers is the uh, the holy grail, right? Like it's, you're locked into a contract, they have to pretty much tell you to stop charging them before you do. Um but yeah, repeat customers are obviously a nice in-between blend there where you can at least show history, right? Hey, this customer came in for this product or project five years ago and has consistently bought up for us every year. I mean, coming back to what we said in the beginning of the, the show here, you know, this, this machine that generates money, like there's consistency, right? There's data around it. There's, you, there's, there's proof that, you, that what you're doing has a stickiness to it. And, and fundamentally, buyers value that at a higher level. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's one of the things that every business owner should really look at is there's lots of great data out there on what the EBITDA multiples are for the majority of companies. And, you know, I would highly recommend you get rid of all the inflated, you know, newsworthy cells because those are so far and few between, yeah. you know, but there's numbers based on whether if you're project-based work, if you're SaaS, if you're consulting services, um, those multiples change based on, you know, how many millions in EBITDA per year you're pulling in. 
Um, so there's big changes there. And there's, there's lots of little sheets I found where it says, you know, these are the six things or the 12 things companies are looking at. And, um, you know, that's something I've paid a lot more attention to in my new company where we do want to have an exit at a period, you know, over a period of time. And so we are building it more intentionally for that exit so that we can say, okay, here's all the checks that we have, right? Here's how this works. Even, even the professional services revenue is, is productized. It's on an annual subscription. You know, here's our renewal rate. Here's our churn rate. So we're really you know, we've come a long way in analyzing that and deciding, um, you know, to build the company around what people value. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How do we shape our business model to to drive yeah. more value in the end? Um, I think that's, um, I think it's a, a smart approach. And, and look, sometimes you kind of, you learn it by experience, right? <laughs> like you see firsthand right. what you should or shouldn't do, what worked, what didn't work and all the rest. Um, for those listening, um, if you'd like a bit of a checklist around what buyers do look for, um, we'll include something here in the show notes. Um, we'll make it available so you can download. We've got lots of checklists on different things, so we'll we'll make that available for anybody who's interested in it. But um, um, Josh, tell, tell us. But maybe we've got a couple of minutes. But maybe you could give us a little bit of an overview of what, what are you doing these days? Where do you spend your time? What's you know, what's what are you putting your passion into? Yeah, sure. So my company is Founder Scale. Put a lot of time and passion into that. And you know, the focus there is we help businesses go from founder revenue to scalable revenue. The majority of those are B2B, you know, professional services organizations where you know the founder capped out in sales at some point and they're looking to get, you know, scale up that revenue and make the transition over to sales and marketing teams. So we help in a lot of ways there. And then uh I'm a father, married, have two boys, and uh, so spend a lot of time with them doing lacrosse and other sports and activities, and so that that takes up a good bit of time as well. Yeah, nice, nice. It's um, yeah, it's nice to have, you know you've done the cycle right. You've started the business, you grew it, you exited. You you some may say you you know a bit crazy to jump back on the merry-go-round and go around again, and other people <laughs> right. be, you know. And, I've, I've done it myself a few times, so you know I, I recognise a touch of that insanity in other people as well. But it's uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, there's, uh, a, there's a touch of that there. <laughs> <laughs> but glad you're being able to, you know, offer that kind of service and support and mentorship and you know the sort of things to help other people on their journey. Um, Josh, I'd like to ask you one final question, if I could, and and I'll get you to answer in a minute. But it's I, I'm really curious with entrepreneurs like yourselves how you personally define success and and it is a super broad question um before before you give me your thoughts or feedback on that can i ask are, are you happy if people listening to this want to reach out are you happy if they want to connect or you know contact you in some way shape or form oh yeah most definitely i mean you can go to founderscale.com and hit the contact form and just ask for me you can go to linkedin you can find me on linkedin josh Sweeney, so I'm um, easy to contact there as well. Yeah, cool. Okay, well, we'll put those we'll put those uh, links in the show notes as well. Um, um, people, please, if you do reach out, you know, maybe give a little note for Josh, knowing that you're letting him know you heard him on the Buy Grow Sell podcast, just so he has a little bit of context uh, context as to to where you're coming from, but uh, and that'll make it a little bit easier for him. But um, yeah, so Josh, yeah, I mean, if we can wrap up, I mean, do, you, do you, is there a definition? What's your view on success, and what does that mean to you? Yeah. So I think it changes over the years. I mean, one aspect of success is do I wake up every morning, 
you know, excited about solving the challenges that I'm solving, you know, especially on the business side and then having the time freedom to do the other things that I would like to do, you know, personally, professionally with my, with my family. So, you know, that's the ultimate success is like being excited about what you do every day. And there's a passion for it. You know, my wife has always asked, you know, like she used to ask, are you working? And I'm like, no, I'm never working. I don't know what you're talking about, you know? <laughs> so there's a little crazy in there, but really enjoy it. Yeah. Um, my latest, you know, is, you know, how, how much larger can I grow this organization and how much faster and larger can I grow it than the last one? So that's just more of success of, you know, it's not really about the number. It's more about the personal growth. So, you know, that's personal growth is a big part of uh, how I factor in my success as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it. I mean, I, I hear what I'm hearing there is there's a sense of purpose, but there's maybe a sense of balance of the different elements of your life as well, which is, which is cool and certainly something I can relate to. So, um, Josh, looks like we're out of time here, mate, but um, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights. I've really enjoyed chatting to you and I know, I know our listeners will get a lot of value from the discussion. So thanks again. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us uh, for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, we will be putting out some additional tools for this episode. So anyone who wants to download those or, or you need access to other checklists or if you need any help with anything, look, please feel free to reach out. We're very happy to share. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Wherever you are on your business journey, it's worth understanding what is driving value into your business and what could be holding you back. For more information, speak to the team at Exit Advisory Group by going to exitadvisory.com.au or send an email to ask at exitadvisory.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.